Good afternoon, Dr. Dan Guerra again. This is going to be part two on the road to intellection. Um, we kind of got cut off on the last one. Hopefully I can get this one finished and just have these two lectures. I do want to finish what I was talking about because I think it's kind of significant um, to take these uh, breathers away from our normal uh, analysis of the published uh, biomedical, biochemical research literature and talk more about the structure of nature itself relative to how thought processes may play a major role in the way that science is formulated. So that's why I'm talking about these various um, ideas and concepts with you. So let's just go back to kind of where we were. <clears throat> so we were talking about atoms in the void. Democritus, right? And there is a lot more than atoms in the void. So by further analysis of these earlier thinkers, you can be sure that the elaboration of all the principles that they laid down some 2,500 years ago in Attic Greek have been either contradicted or have been at least well compromised into an understanding that has benefited nevertheless from these early um, great thinkers, most of which were not experimental scientists. Some of them probably did a little bit of that, but most of it was thinking and observation. But I don't want you to believe that that isn't still an empirical um, endeavor because empiricism simply means that it is an experiential relationship between what you're trying to understand about, let's say, a natural phenomenon and how you report it, right? It's not simply thinking about the logic of it or the structure of it at some higher level of principled reason. It's also examining and understanding what is in front of you. And this is, again, is the basis of research science. And then all of the flowers that came from those very early endeavors. Yes, it was philosophy involving a, a great deal of trying to get at what is um, the epistemological approach to grasp, to apprehend the world around you. And then they use that as the major tool to get at the metaphysics. What is there ontologically? What is really there and how does it function? Keeping an open mind to the apheron or the noumena, realizing that you're, all, you're working just through your senses and your a priori capabilities with your central nervous system. So that it occurred even to these ancient Greeks that that means you are still focused with a lens while you study the world. Okay. So these ancient ideas sprang not from careful, scientific, hypothetical deduction and then testing of theories, but rather, I would argue, almost from an unhindered, experiential, reasoning mind. Here the imagination and its summary judgments of multiple inductions take the form of pure ideas where there were was likely multiple occurrences of 
a necessary infusion or spark, if you want, to start the fire that became the basis of human understanding at the level of general concepts, all of which, again, were used to explain the world. Now, I'm not saying that these ancient Greeks were the only people doing this. I'm saying that we have their recorded literature and we can follow through on their, yeah, intellection. And it was definitely of a uh, more than meager state even that long ago. Indeed, of all of our epistemic largesse, our knowledge base comes not only from this mentational process and then this overarching transcendental intellection of collective experience, but also from regular and frequent inbreaking of what I call pure reason. By that, I mean the faculty of a perspective that is constantly being informed by the imagination. And why I keep on bringing up imagination is because I think it's overlooked as a faculty of reason. The imagination, remember, in its most distilled definition, has to do with the capability of the human mind to imagine, to think about something, to reason through a, a chemical equation or a mathematical formula when there's nothing there in front of you. That is, you can imagine what you do not see, what you do not sense. And not only can you imagine it, you can run a sequential process from beginning, middle to end of what you are imagining and then use that as a template to start referring to concepts to generalize the, the very specific ideation one generates as they follow through with a complete thought process while examining nature with the senses. Okay? So that's really an important issue. And I think that what I, what I don't want you to miss, I, if many of you that listen to this podcast are probably proto-scientists, or maybe you have medical backgrounds, or maybe you're, you're lay people, but all of us are scientific. Our minds work that way. And when you're trained as a scientist, when that's what you do for your entire career, you're not taught what I'm telling you now. This is a, you know, aging scientist giving you my perspective on how thought processes work, not just from my thought processes, but from what I can um, recover from reading all the way back to ancient Greeks, and then all the research science that I've been able to uh, take part in, uh, to contribute to, and of course, digest over all these years, uh, now over 40 years um, since I've had a doctorate and being a scientist. So kind of like to fuse this together. We experience the particular and we assign it to the general by means of applying concepts in logical thought. The concepts arise from our faculty of understanding, which itself is always reliant upon 
the fruit of free thought and hard, what I call the hard intellection, all of which is provided to us a priori. That is, the means by which this occurs is a priori, but it is our intentional free will that promotes us into getting a deeper understanding of where we started from, wherever that happens to be. Science is basically a derivative of these pure faculties, faculties of reason specific. And its only authentic function is that of possessing a better explanatory power of the world. That's what science is doing. It's a, perhaps a better explanation than some other method. So long as we admit the limitations of all of these generalizations as one of focus on the mere physical world, because that's really all our senses are able to uh, perform these kind of analyses toward. Okay, so let's see what else I want to say here. Um, the mind, okay, the mind. While it's enabled by the central nervous system, is always truly empowered by freedom of will, free choice of the will, of which even possessing all this neural correlation is not explained by any of the physical and chemical and biological principles we've been able to derive using this power. Okay. That's the noumena. So how then do people with no formal training or knowledge of physics and chemistry and biology or medicine, how, does, how do people nevertheless attempt to understand the world as presented by science to them? Well, obviously, lay people, people that don't have the training in this, and even people who do have training, but let's face it, aren't particularly good at it. So there are excellent scientists and there are excellent professors, and then there are those that are not, just like in any field. There are excellent welders and excellent plumbers, and there are a whole lot of people that can't help you weld anything better than you can do yourself or fix your drain. It's really basically the same thing. So the problem is that most people are digesting scientific uh, conclusions without considering the premises, that is the, um, the way that we get started with the whole finishing at the level of concepts and rules or conclusions or even way beyond that to inductions, right? Remember, this is all propositional logic. So you must propose and you must ask every time you hear something uh, that's supposedly stated from the scientific community, you have to be able to discern what are the propositions behind, first of all, the hypothetical deduction, then the experimental design, then the experiments themselves, the data, the evidence, and the conclusions.
And you have to constantly be reminded that all of that is a movement of the mind that is specific to individuals doing the work and can be compromised by bias. Okay. It's a really important thing. That's why we need to understand this whole concept of belief and suppositions of truth and justification. And a lot of people would argue, I think, even in my own subdiscipline of biochemistry, that belief is not the right word. Of course it is. You cannot accept the truth in nature unless you believe it. If you don't believe it's the truth, it is a working truth. That is, it's still basically an hypothesis. Always. It's still a truth that can populate what we think truth is, which is what's actually happening authentically in some natural phenomenon. And anybody that argues that it, belief isn't involved um, is either not aware of what belief means or they're trying to hide their own bias because it is, does come down to individual belief. Otherwise, you can't call it a truth. If it's not a truth, you're not going to go and describe it to others. Or if you do, then you're basically committing some kind of intellectual fraud, right? So that's what the important point about all this I want to bring, bring out. So what lay people call, what I call lay people call knowledge, is fundamentally really a non-physicalist account, since they would lack the whatever those necessary proficiencies are to apprehend the scientific worldview as it is. So most lay people believe what they are told, and we scientists believe that we have some justification on some natural, quotation marks, truth. Now, this is paradoxical because the very nature of human knowledge requires knowing. And again, that's the basis of science. And that means you're fundamentally carrying out an acquiescence to the unknown and unseen authority of your intellect. And that whole system has to possess uncertainty to allow for certainty to occasionally exist within. Okay. So that's the basic thing. And this framework that I deal with, I call it tailspin. Now, tailspin, I guess, when you're talking about birds, you're talking about planes, um, usually alludes to some rotational downward movement. I would like to think my tailspin, what I'm trying to describe here, what I'm alluding to, is a rotational vectorial movement of mind that is either downward or upward and certainly uncertain. Okay, so I've got a little bit more time left. Yeah, I've got like half the lecture, 15 minutes. I'm going to go ahead and take you from the journey through intellection and this brief discussion of what I call tailspin 
interest going into the woodlands, okay? Now, this is going to be far more metaphysical. So here's where I get. The individual, consider the individual as a creature of the forest. And the nature of the human condition is either engagement with society or some form of individual in free isolation. Either way, it blends into the one and out to the other. So mankind evolves, apparently, as a species, while a man, or of course a woman, transforms in their lifetime as a rational, authentic individual. The major distinction, besides the obvious, is the element of time. Mankind evolves unwittingly in an inherited world that it perpetually modifies with all of this encoded, cohering structure. While an individual with its very short time span, but totally in control via free will of what it does with its life, the individual has this seriously significant daily choice of creating his understanding of the world or allowing the world to create him. Mankind is an unknowing phenomenon of the natural world, while the individual is a self-aware, reflective stranger to his species. The individual is capable of making an effort, however, to understand his becoming until his mortal end. Mankind has no such choice. So both as a species and as an individual, mankind is cause and effect of his becoming in time. Mankind loses itself in what I call the sea of an ever-growing remnant antiquity without guidance from a recorded cultural history therefore the if you don't have that the masses become a non-comprehending horde wherein even entire civilizations and certainly customs and languages can be laid to waste with a progressive rhetoric associated with illogical conclusions. They're illogical because there is no propositional logic to start. History in that point can become a vague pseudo-paradox as the present remembers imperfectly events once individually experienced afternoon style, right before dinner. 
now those collectively rec re uh, recollected and indeed transcriptionally recorded memories turn ironically significant and sacred. That's the component of history. All the while, what I call the they grow metastatically weaker, forfeiting their collective selves in a perpetual fear, which is basically a self-imposed imprisonment. Fear of what? Well, fear of the unknown, fear of the uncertain, most certainly, but also fear of illness and death. Now, in sharp contrast, the nature of one's self-aware individual life because it's so brief in time, musters the courage to overcome fear. That imagined energy barrier that separates the intellect from the spirit. Thus, the individual authenticates his soul to a season of hard work by regularly and perpetually gathering knowledge. Thus is the trajectory of the endojective self, who is nurtured for fitness in a world that's crisscrossed by steam locomotive fury targeting the pilgrim individual, undaunted and always running toward it. Okay. So I think I think I might leave you there because I'm not, let me check let me check my time because I'm it's not a place no I still have time I'm going to go ahead I was going to leave you there because I wanted you to ponder all of this what I'm describing here this is not a psychological discussion this is a metaphysical discussion okay all right so ultimately the individual becomes the realm of what I call the perpetual event. However dangerous and uncertain, steadfastly experiencing and still directing both cause and effect. Disinterested, thereby transcendental toward ideas, concepts, and contemplation. So what of this mankind and its evolving structure, society, versus the free individual? Okay, now here's where we're trying to do a dialectical analysis, right? Dialectical analysis. The change in society reflects not progression toward wisdom, but rather descent into indulgence, while the agent individual has to seek wisdom through only one very narrow door. What is that narrow door? It's sacrifice. So, typically by faith in an eternal soul, and the graces provided through the faculties of reason, agentic deployment of individual courage 
will end up providing a better chance at true wisdom, where the imagination and the understanding are operating a priori, always shining some light on the pathway to what should be a virtuous life. So self-discipline by virtues of courage and wisdom, belief in truths justified, are driven into a resolute commitment. This is the process of becoming, not being, becoming. And the agentic happening occurs within time offered to explain the meaning of one's individual existence. Time gives us that avenue. Time is nothing more than a working of the mind to see sequences of events, one following the other, as it turns out, except perhaps in dreams. So the individual must be on guard against any virtue deficient and addictive distraction. Some utopian promised land, a perpetual social happiness, and therefore blind to wisdom and seeking abandon in what is the darkness of the night. So that the thinking man, this life encourages experimentation, analysis, deduction, and inference. Perhaps personal virtue is some method of discovery which is bordered by care of yourself and others that's inspired through experience and with practice and luck could be a method for wisdom. Wisdom, finally, is the transcendental personal harmony of freely exercised intellect and experience as lived by what hoping hope can be an ethical individual. So I think that that's as far as I really want to get with this discussion. The reason I went through this with you is it's the second half of what I did on the first half hour. When I'm describing um, concepts of wisdom and science and philosophy, it's obviously from just one point of view, just one individual, mine. But each individual has the capacity to do exactly the same thing in whatever way they see fit for themselves and relative to their experiences. And of course, not just education, but their knowledge base. And so what sounds like a lot of work is nothing more than sitting down and contemplating what it is you call your understanding or your worldview. If your worldview is drawn towards science, as I guess my worldview is a scientific worldview, it's larger than that, but it's certainly that as some fundamental even as a scientist, I always want to make sure 
as sure as I can in an uncertain world, right? That what I believe I'm calling truths in research science are indeed particularly durable over time and over new information, but also over that resonating feature of intellection. And everybody and anybody can do that. All right. So um, that wasn't a sermon. That was just a philosophical discussion on authentic biochemistry. You know that I do this if you listen to the this podcast for any uh, length of time. And so I'm not going to apologize for it. It's just the kind of thing I think sometimes it's worth talking about if people are uh, interested in thinking about research science um, with a complete parallax from all different points of view, uh, at least one point of view, and that would be mine at this point. <laughs> all right. Uh, Dr. Dan Guerra on 30 July 2023, uh, finishing off this tailspin discussion with a little bit of an entry into the individual woodlands. Next time you hear me, we'll be talking back in a new series of authentic biochemistry with peer-reviewed published research. Thank you very much and bye for now.